All right, Vince Horn here for another episode of Buddhist Geeks, and I am really excited to be speaking today with a special guest, Dr. Douglas Osto. Uh, Douglas, thank you so much for taking the time to be here and uh, looking forward to our chat today. Thanks a lot, Vince. I'm looking Before forward to we it. Jump... <laughs> yeah, likewise, likewise. Um, before we jump into the content of the show, which is going to really be focused on this meditating on psychedelics theme, I wanted to mention that we have just recently launched a Buddhist Geeks Patreon page, and that's one of the two main ways that people can support the show. And the Patreon is meant to help us fund the production costs and the time costs put into doing the show. And the other cool thing about it is that we also have a couple rewards where we're giving people something back as a thank you for contributing financially. Um, the two main rewards right now are instant access to the podcast, which means that right after I'm done recording a show or someone else is recording, we're going to take the finished recording and immediately make it accessible to those with instant access. Um, the later recording will be dropped for everyone else a few days or weeks afterward. So if you want to get sort of instantaneous transmission of the Buddhist Geeks podcast, you can do that. And then the second reward is uh, bonus episodes. So uh, for instance, Doug and I had a call uh, last week and we talked about what we're going to talk about today. I'll be recording some of those pre-chat calls um, and sharing those again instantly with people um, that are subscribed to this Patreon level. And also having some extra conversations, some extra episodes, um, mostly with friends, with people that are willing to have, in some sense, even more intimate conversations for a smaller audience. Um, so those will also be coming through regularly, a few a week, a few a month, rather. Um, and the other way you can give uh, to, the, to the show is just go to BuddhistGeeks.org and there's a give link if you want to just send us some, some, uh, some, cart, some cold, cold hard cash. And that'll support us as well. So thank you for that. Um, and let's go ahead and jump in. So today I'm speaking, as I said, with Douglas Osto. I think you go by Doug as well. So I'll yeah, refer Doug's to you as great. Doug. Can, yeah, okay. that's great. Thanks. Great. And a little bit of background about Doug. So Doug um, teaches at Massey University in New Zealand. And he's also the author of his most recent book called Altered States, Buddhism and Psychedelic Spirituality in America. And I think this is one of the main reasons, uh, obviously, we're having you on today is to talk about some of the stuff that you explored in that book. Um, I was curious, too, before we jump into that, if you could share a little bit about your dissertation, because I feel like it gives you some serious uh, Buddhist geeky cred. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I, I trained in um, sort of what's known as um, classical Buddhist philology. So um, my original interest was in early um, Indian Mahayana Buddhism. And so I spent a lot of my time um, studying languages, Sanskrit, um, Tibetan, and um, Pali. And yeah, so my PhD was on a, um, a Mahayana Buddhist sutra called the Gandavyuha Sutra. And it was basically a thematic study of the sutra in its um, ancient Indian context, which is around uh, around the 4th century of the Common Era. And then uh, that was my first book, actually, which um, came out with Rutledge um, called Power, Wealth, and Women um, in Indian Mahayana Buddhism. So, yeah, so my... my Original training was actually in um, in ancient Indian Buddhism, so this was a, a kind of a foray into a um, a new a new area with my interest in um, uh, American Buddhism and psychedelics. Nice. So I was curious too, and we didn't talk about this last time. Are are you a scholar practitioner? Is that is that part of your background as well? Do you yeah get yeah into that's the safe practice to, side of things? Yeah, no, that's safe to say. Um, yeah, I've had a long um, standing interest in. Uh, in Buddhism, not just sort of academically, but um, but also as a practitioner since um, since I was a teenager, um, I'm not a um, I'm not affiliated with any particular group. So I kind of refer refer to myself as a sort of non sectarian um, Mahayana Buddhist. But um, but probably um, most significant training has been in um, in Zen and then also Vipassana. So um, I spent some time in Sri Lanka back in the 90s when I was on a Fulbright, where I was quite into um, 
doing some um, vipassana, but more recently it's been um, it's been Zen. So, and then I also teach um, a mindfulness meditation class um, locally at the local branch of the Theosophical Society in Palmerston North. So I've been doing that for about eight or nine years now, as um, just mindfulness meditation. So, yeah. So it is safe to say that I'm a scholar practitioner of <laughs> of, of Buddhism. Okay, cool. I sort of assumed that just based on our conversation reading your book, but uh, it's good to hear kind of a bit about the background too. Yeah, yeah. And that's always that's always been a driver. You know, I mean, there's plenty of people in Buddhist studies who are not Buddhists or do not practice Buddhism. And, and that's one of the things about the academy is um, you, you don't really need to have that personal engagement. But for me, they've always sort of gone hand in hand with each other. So, Yeah, that makes sense. And to be honest, I think that of the scholars we've talked to on the show over the years, most of them probably uh, a good majority have been in that camp as well. Yeah, and it's funny because um, for a long time, um, I think there were a lot more who were sort of in the closet about their personal commitment to Buddhism because it was thought to, um, in the academy, it was thought to, to threaten their objectivity. But um, since, especially the, um, since that book, um, Buddhist Theology, came out, which I think was in the 90s, where a lot of these sort of tenured tenured scholars sort of came out of the closet <laughs> as sort of committed to Buddhism, it's um, it's a lot more acceptable sort of these days to um, to be a bit more outspoken about. I mean, of course, there's always exceptions. You know, people like um, Robert Thurman, for example, have always been sort of outspoken about their commitments. But but now it's sort of I think with a kind of postmodern turn, it's it's kind of important to. Um, to sort of acknowledge and admit your, you know, your personal commitments and realize that it does impact on your research. So. Okay, so good, yeah. good. This, this is a good, this is really a good segue into the topic. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and thanks for teeing me up like that. Yeah. Uh, because part of what I understand that you titled this book Altered States is in part because you sort of make this observation that altered states themselves have been a taboo thing in modern scholarship and in even modern society. Uh, I, was, I was curious if we could start there um, and then maybe work our way into the psychedelic conversation because um, it seems like a broader point that needs to be sort of talked about, um, especially when we're talking about the combination or the potential coming together of Buddhist meditative you know, approaches and psychedelic use. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I um and I think that's really the kind of connecting point between my early interest in um Mahayana Buddhism and and psychedelics is because, you know, in these Mahayana sutras, I mean not not in everyone and not everywhere, but um especially in the Gandavyuha and then the um the Avatamsaka, the flower ornament scripture which the Gandavyuha is, is actually a part of. Um, they're just filled with visions, filled with visionary experiences, um, which uh, which often they call samadhis, um, which in my mind are are really highly suggestive of of some kind of altered state of consciousness. And um, and as you said, that I mean, it's 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 been okay for a while to study altered states in the sense, um, you know, as an anthropologist or in the field, you're studying shamanism, something like that. That's okay, but. Um, in, um, I guess we could say in modern modernist discourse or scientific discourse, um, generally any kind of altered state or sort of non-ordinary experience um, has often been put in the category of uh, some kind of mental illness. So if you know if you're having visions or you're having um, these experiences that are not sort of publicly verifiable, um, then uh, it's very quickly often put into the category of, of, um, of psychosis or some kind of mental illness or delusion or hallucination. And so I think that's where the, um, that's where the taboo has come from. Uh, and that's why people I think have been hesitant to, to talk openly about their own, their own experiences. So, so I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think the larger discourse is about altered states and their role in, um, in our society and our attitudes towards them. And then, of course, the kind of drug-induced or, or psychedelically-induced altered states, you can kind of see as sort of a, um, a subset of that category. Okay, interesting. So I'm realizing before we even start talking about psychedelics, it might also be worth 
maybe just briefly talking about the difference that seems to come up with respect to people's views about Buddhist contemplation and the purpose of it. Um, I especially have seen this uh, clearly in different Zen schools compared to, for instance, Vipassana schools where concentration or samadhi practices uh, often emphasize, where some schools seem to say, hey, altered states are not the point at all. Um, really, if you get into an altered state, um, you, the best you can do is just let go of it. Um, whereas what you're describing with the uh, uh, with the sutra, um, the Mahayana sutra, and also, you know, you said you're in Sri Lanka. My understanding of Sri Lankan um, Theravada Buddhism is that a lot of it focuses heavily on concentration practice. It's been one of the hallmarks of the Sri Lankan approach. And so one cannot do concentration practice, especially intensively, without getting into altered states of consciousness. In a way, you could say that's the whole point uh, of the practices. So curious if you have any thoughts on on that sort of split that, that we see even even without getting into psychedelics, just on the Buddhist side of the street. Yeah, no, and those are, I mean, those are interesting topics all by themselves. And, and you're right, in Zen, um, traditionally, there's, you know, they talk about Zen sickness that, you know, through, you know, through the practice of Zen, you can get into some very, very interesting states of, altered states of consciousness. But that, again, that's not really the point. And, and then Vipassana, or, you know, if you're training in the jhanas and you're, you're trying to attain, you know, attain these different levels of, of trance states or concentration, again, you know, you might have things that appear, you know, visions that appear or whatever, but the idea is not, you know, not to cling to them. So, I mean, that's definitely an aspect to these different kinds of practice. What's interesting, though, in, in Mahayana sutras like the Gandavyuha, um, they use this term samadhi. Um, which, you know, traditionally is meant sort of concentration. Um, but they describe experiences where someone will see um, infinite numbers of Buddhas sort of, you know, self-replicating in these sort of geometric patterns throughout all time and space. And it becomes a, it's a kind of means um, to accessing the the Dharma in a way, because it's not, it's not the value in the vision per se. It's the being able to, to see Buddhas, you know, hear, hear their discourses, you know, actually, you know, sit, sit in front of them and to develop along the Bodhisattva path, right? Because once you have Mahayana comes along, it'd be, the, the goal now is to become a completely omniscient um, Buddha, not just to, to become an Arhat, to attain Nirvana and to sort of pass away outside of samsara so this becomes a very like long path you know it's supposed to take incalculable eons but if you can enter into one of these states where you know there's an interpenetration of all time and space and you can sit at the feet of um you know a trillion buddhas in a single instant um you you rapidly sort of <laughs> compress the amount of time that it takes to uh, <laughs> to uh, um to acquire enlightenment so so it's interesting that you, the point that you make, and it's a very good point, is that in a lot of modern practice, um, there is there is a kind of uh, wariness, and I, and I think in some ways for good reason. But if you look at the the, the classical or the traditional sources, uh, and then not not only just in the sutras, but if you look, you know, if you read kind of the hagiographies and in in, um, in Chinese and things like that. Uh, which I'm not that familiar with, but I know a little bit about that. It's it's not uncommon that people have these sort of visions. I mean, even in Pure Land Buddhism, you know, visions of of Amida Buddha and the Pure Land and things like that are, are very much a part of um, of the tradition. Yes, yes, and and you know, even bringing it down to sort of a meditative phenomenology level, you know, having gone on long retreats and know, and knowing many people who do. Um, it's a really common um, reported experience to to get into and experience some of these very very perceptually altered states of experience where there are visions, uh, all kinds of bodily raptures, dissolution, dis the the uh, dissolution of body and space and time. I mean, those are really actually quite common experiences on longer intensive you know retreat practice in scenarios. And um, from everything that I've heard from folks that have had those experiences, you know, they've been one of some of the most pivotal 
um, and insightful experiences and when they look back on their practice in a similar way that some some people report psychedelics are. Yeah, and I, and I think you make an excellent point because um, because I have a little experience with with um, long retreat practice, but there was also a number of people that I interviewed um, for the book who described very vivid, very detailed altered states of consciousness just just through meditation. And I actually I had a side project. I was thinking of writing another book, which didn't materialize. But one of the things I did do was I um, had an online survey of um, Vipassana practitioners from the from the Goinka tradition. And I, about 100 people filled out the survey. And um, something like 40% reported some type of altered state of consciousness during those 10-day um, intensive retreats. And some of them were, were very um, vivid um, uh, visual hallucinations and seeing, seeing uh, beings and people who weren't there. And, uh, and I think that's very interesting. Um, and I think it also it, – it's important to – to recognize that. It was interesting because, I mean, part of, I mentioned in the beginning of my book that my interest in altered states has led in two directions. One of them is to look at the possible role of altered states in the origins of Mahayana uh, Buddhism, and then also the kind of relationship between altered states and, and psychedelics and, and American Buddhism. And at a conference a few years back when I was presenting on uh, altered states in early Mahayana and the visions that occur in um, in the Skandavyuha Sutra, a scholar uh, quite sort of venerable scholar uh, who's worked on the Gundavyuha was quite adamant that, you know, these visions are just sort of literary flourish and these things don't happen to people um, in meditation. And, and, I, and I, I thought I was quite amazed by that in, in the sense that, you know, he was all of a sudden he was going, I don't know what, just on his own, his own personal sort of anecdotal experience. But I mean, from the data that I've collected and, and what you're just telling me right now um, is confirmed by that, is that no, actually, in fact, people do have some people, not everybody, not everyone's right. prone to these kind of things. But there are definitely right. a cohort of people that once you engage in, you know, serious retreat uh, practice that you're going to have these experiences. And I think what they point to is that we're actually we're altering our our chemistry, we're altering our, our physiology, and that that's pretty much what an altered state of consciousness is. And the same thing happens uh, when we take psychedelics, is we're we're kind of we're messing with our our brain chemistry. Whether it's sitting on the cushion and fasting and sleep deprivation and sensory deprivation or any of those kind of shamanic techniques, or whether it's you know taking psilocybin or peyote or LSD. We are we're altering our chemistry, and that's leading to these kind of altered states of consciousness. Okay, great. And I mean, I, I guess it's it's helpful, especially since we're just starting this series, to maybe talk about the difference between endogenous and exogenous means for altering consciousness, um, where one is you know sort of altering it from within, and the other is sort of introducing something from outside. Um, I'm I'm curious. If that's a distinction you found helpful, and and to what degree that holds up? Yeah, it's one that I haven't found really that helpful because okay, I, mean, I interesting. Think <laughs> I think there's some purists who who mm. want to say that okay, this is natural, and so it's more real or more authentic versus okay, that's chemical, so you're introducing something foreign to your body. But I think that um, it's a bit um, as you know, from using a, if we want to use a Buddhist sort of critique from the point of view of emptiness, it's a bit essentialistic to think that 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 line that's drawn between okay, this is me and my body, and this is outside in the environment is is a bit of an artificial one, um, because it's an extremely permeable um, boundary, and you know, there's never really a baseline consciousness. The amount of sleep that we have, the foods that we're eating, our emotional state, all these things are um, – are the environment that we're in at the moment, all these things are interacting in very complex ways to produce our, you know, our current state of consciousness. And so you know, if I fast for many days and, and stay in the cave in the dark and I start having visions, the mechanism 
as far as the kind of neurotransmitters and chemicals I'm releasing in my brain are, you know, and I'm not an expert in this, but from what I know, are very close analogous to the same kind of neurochemical reactions that happen when someone takes something like peyote or psilocybin. It's because we have those receptors um, in our neurotransmitters that, that um, allows us to trip. I mean, I think a very, a very obvious example is DMT. I mean, which is you know one of the more powerful hallucinogens. Is that you know we now know that you know DMT uh, is everywhere, including in the human body um, and in human tissue. And and there's some pretty good anecdotal evidence, especially from you know people like Rick Straussman who've done extensive um, study of DMT, that um, it's quite possible under sort of extreme experiences like near death, for example, um, that this endogenous, you know, naturally occurring DMT in our body can, will reach a certain threshold, which will then send, um, send you into an altered state of consciousness. And I, and I think when, when you start realizing things like this, then the, the boundary between sort of endogenous and, and, um, and, uh, external sort of begins to break down a bit. It's funny because even as I was making that distinction and bringing it up, I also started to, <laughs> my mind started to, to come to a similar conclusion. <laughs> a similar question. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and to be fair, you know, part of this exploration is really meant to explore the boundary between people's views on, on the combination of Buddhist meditation and uh, ritualized psychedelic use and you know, the relationship between those and and some people uh, and I really w- would love for you to talk about what you found in your research because um, this is part of how I was able to even make this distinction is by reading your book um, but some people are sort of tolerant of the possibility that um, that these things uh, that psychi- ritualized psychedelic use could be relevant to or, or useful in some way but but they're also quite skeptical that um, that that they're ultimately useful. That that they're better than Buddhist practice. Really, Buddhist practice is is the way to go. Um, whereas other people are a little more open to that possibility of of a hybridized approach. You call those people psychedelic Buddhists, and I, I gather from how you're talking about things that you may yourself be a psychedelic Buddhist. I don't know if you would uh, uh, yeah, accept no, I mean, that I'm categorization. In the postscript, I don't know if you read the postscript of, of my book, but it's auto. It kind of it has. Uh, it's an autobiographical account. It's a sort of a sketch, really, and I, that's when I'm. I come out of the closet and, and say that. I mean, I guess by my own definition, I would be a a, um, a psychedelic Buddhist. Um, although I think you know the that those kind of the stories that I recount in my experiences in my book. Um, you know, are largely in my past. You know, once you're a father of five, uh, <laughs> it doesn't really it doesn't really leave a lot of time for <laughs> for um, for those kind of adventures. But I mean, that said, I, I don't deny the value that I got out of uh, out of those experiences. So, and I am still open to them as potential. I, I see them as tools. You know, and I'm not alone here. I mean, I I look and I and then my book is you know, and I have to come. I have to say that this is from my perspective. But the book, I was very careful to try to present as as, much, as best I could a sort of balanced view. And it's important to acknowledge right away that um, you know psychedelic Buddhists are 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 definitely not the mainstream. I mean, not even you know Buddhism itself is a kind of is a sort of what I call convert or white Buddhism in the United States is is a quite a elite group. But within that group. There is a there is a kind of what I refer to as a sort of heterodox practice, um, right? Because many people do to do see that psychedelic use is is uh, a violation of the of the fifth precept to abstain from intoxicants, but within the the cohort of kind of American white convert Buddhists, there are some people that that have uh, have and do blend the use of uh, and practice of Buddhism and the use of of psychedelics. Um, 
and and that has been you know has been my history, and so I ha- I have to admit that because um, another another big issue that comes up in the book is this whole category of experience, right? And so for American Buddhists who practice meditation and then people who use psychedelics, the category of experience is is very important. And what is your experience, and how your experience validates your kind of position? So I I think it would be kind of disingenuous of 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 myself to write a book and not kind of admit, you know, you know, at least to some degree what, what my own experience has been. So, but they're not, they're not the mainstream and they and I do talk about, you know, I, I basically, I, as I talk in my book, you know, I have three different chapters, which are really the core of the book. And one of them is called opening the door. Um, the other one is called closing the door, and the other one, and then the third one's called keeping the door open. And so basically, I'm using this door metaphor, which I got from the people I interviewed, uh, as as a metaphor for you know psychedelics as they open the door. And and I think with these three groups, some people tried them, especially you know beginning in the '60s, uh, found that they showed them a sort of different view of reality, and um, and then they sort of um, took something away from that, and then they closed the door behind them. Um, and then that's the second group, people that opened the door and then closed it and who don't use psychedelics anymore. And, and then there's the, the third group who, who, you know, who keep the door open, as I say, who are, who are basically the psychedelic Buddhists, which I think probably a lot of people will find that the most interesting part of the book. But I try to put that group within the con, the larger context of American Buddhism. Great. That, that, that makes good sense. And, and that's, you know, part of the inspiration for me as well is to explore that territory, in particular the territory that has been underground. Um, yeah, yeah. There's something interesting about the fact that there are there is a cohort of people that do do these things that you and I would um, consider ourselves part of in some sense. Uh, although I also have a two-year-old and don't do a lot of these kind of adventures myself. Um, <laughs> but all the same, um, it it seems like the fact that that conversation really hasn't happened up to this point or that, that, that this has been almost purely underground, you know, with the exception of a few... Uh, popular teachers like like my own Jack Cornfield or others in in the mm-hmm. in the famous Zigzag Zen book, mm-hmm. the, the really the only book that was written for quite some time on Buddhism and psychedelics. Um, you know, there are people who have been, like you said, Robert Thurman, who are out out of the closet from the very beginning. But the most people uh, are are not. They're underground. Um, they're uh, avoiding talking about these things in in some ways for very good reasons. And um, that to me is maybe one of the most interesting parts of this whole discussion is, you know, what are the reasons that, that this has been underground? Are those good reasons? Um, you know, uh, should we understand those reasons better, even if we have zero interest in, in, the, in psychedelics? Um, because this is, uh, you know, a decent, it's still a, a somewhat decent percentage of the overall number of people who are engaging in Buddhist practice and convert circles. Yeah, and I and I think those are really good questions, and those are those are questions that I um, pursued in in the book. And one of the things that I was very interested in was how this kind of you know heterodox tradition of psychedelic Buddhism has continued uh, as not just a historical phenomenon from the '60s, but has continued into generations X and Y, and into new venues like Burning Man and 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 psychedelic trance and. Uh, neo shamanism and um, and how you have this kind of evolving alternative spirituality, the kind of ayahuasca tourism and all these kind of things that have um, have been going on and um, and I, and I think there 's obvious reasons right for why it 's been so it 's been underground because these a lot of these substances are are illegal and especially during the war on drugs, um, you could get in a lot of trouble um, f- for using them, but then also I think over time. What you see from from the '60s, um, when there was there was a kind of, bl- of a very free blending of you know Buddhism, psychedelics, Hinduism, Tarot, Wicca, is that you know Buddhism has become more established. You know, sanghas have have you know put down roots in communities and are you know part of um, you know 
have local charities and things like that. And so they've, they, they've, Buddhist communities in some ways have become more mainstream, have gotten more conservative, and so the, this conversation or open dialogue um, has become sort of more frowned upon. And so, so you have people who, um, you know, psychedelic Buddhists are in the closet, you know, not just to wider society, but and also to the, you know, their particular sanghas, um, because that kind of um, open blending or mixing is would be frowned upon. And I, and I think, and what was interesting to me, and one of the drivers for my research is this whole question of, of the fifth precept, right? Because there's a fifth precept against intoxicants, one of the five that um, lay Buddhists take. And how important or, or unimportant is that to American Buddhists? And from what I found out was it, um, it wasn't really as important as you might think for a lot of people. I mean, even when I, you know, in my, the survey of Vipassana students uh, and in Goenka Vipassana, as, as you may know, they put a lot of emphasis on following all, all five precepts. And I asked in my survey, uh, and this was broader than just America, this was sort of, sort of English-speaking practitioners of Vipassana, at least one retreat, you know, in your daily life, how, is, how important you know, is it to practice? And then I had each of the five precepts and, you know, to abstain from killing, stealing, lying, they're quite high, 80, 90%. And I think the abstaining from intoxicants was about, was about 50%. So it seems like for a lot of people, they're not that concerned with the following the fifth precept. And then for those that do follow the, the fifth precept, there's very, there's a difference of opinion as to whether, using psychedelics for spiritual purposes would actually put it in the category of, of um, intoxicant or not. So these were some, these are kind of different flashpoints. Uh, you know, do you follow the precepts? And if so, is using psychedelics for spiritual purposes considered uh, a violation of that, uh, the abstaining from intoxicants? So, um, these are some of the questions I explored. <laughs> yeah, and and I was curious, you know, pull, pulling from from what you discovered in the research, uh, what what were the what were the things that surprised you in exploring this? Were there any uh, were there any things that kind of jumped out at you that you hadn't anticipated you know, before you started the research, or was it was it kind of more uh, of, of a validation of of your basic intuition about how how people related to these things? Uh, it was a bit of both. I, I think the biggest eye opener for me was um, was the altered states of consciousness that people entered into without using psychedelics. Mm -hmm. um, I was quite astounded, really. It was interesting because uh, I, I was actually very well positioned because as as an academic, you know, with credentials, and um, you know, we have very st strict. Um, ethical guidelines uh, about doing these, this kind of research. So I, I was, uh, I had to protect every, you know, people's anonymity um, and confidentiality. And, and so when I sat down to, to talk to people that I interviewed, uh, I was amazed um, at different experiences that they had. And just, and also because they knew that I was doing this study, uh, they felt at liberty to, to disclose these experiences and, and, and they were they're quite astounding. And this sort of gets back to that we were talking about before, the kind of taboo discourse. Um, and I noticed and I'll just give you an example that because I you know I was working on this project for about five years in conjunction with my study of altered states in, in sort of Mahayana Buddhism. And almost inevitably at every conference that I went to or public talk uh, right in the beginning, someone would make a joke about how, you know, we should be tripping or, you know, I should, you know, is the water spiked or we should do mushrooms or something like that. And I, and I started to, you know, and, and at first it kind of annoyed me, right? Because it's like I wanted to be taken seriously. Like I'm a serious scholar, right? I don't want people to be making jokes about my research. But then when I looked at it in a bit more detail, I, I realized that, in, in, you know, humor is very often used as a way to, uh, release tension, right? So there's this kind of reticence, uh, a kind of uncomfortableness around talking about openly um, psychedelics, altered states of consciousness. And so the jokes were meant as a kind of way to diffuse that. 
But then after the formal talk that I would give, you know, during the tea break or uh, coffee break or meals or after, you know, dinner drinks or whatever, very often people would approach me and say, okay, well, I've got to tell you about, you know, this is what happened to me once. And some of those stories were, were, were you know, were quite mind-blowing, you know, to me. And, and in, in a way where, like, I wasn't concerned about are the, you know, is this true or is this real? It was true to the people that had these experiences. And that's one of the things that I, I try to bring home in my book is I really try to champion the, uh, the importance of, of subjectivity. You know, these people's subjective experiences matter. And so these experiences that they have, whether drug-induced or otherwise, uh, they matter because they matter to them. You know, they have a really big impact on people's lives. And so often, if someone has a really profound visionary experience or altered state, um, they're, they're, they're very shy about it because they don't want to be seen as, you know, crazy or lunatic fringe or, you know, or, or something like that. So I think that was one of the most interesting things for me. Uh, and surprising things for me that uh, that I got out of my research. That's really interesting. Um, it, you know, what that brings up for me, the, the, the sort of connection point there is between meditation and psychedelics is the other common kind of concern about psychedelic usage in Buddhist um, environments, which is that this stuff is dangerous and it has the potential to be quite dangerous. And that's mm-hmm. not something I disagree with. In fact, I've had um, I've had a, a very s- s- intense bad trip um, that almost left me hospitalized. Um, and so, part of my interest in this topic is to also explore that side of things. But what I find interesting about that observation or that kind of concern is that if if it's not also recognized that meditation is dangerous and when it's done in high doses um, can lead to some of the same exact types of experiences of psychosis, of uh, dissociation, um, of long-term mental um, problems, um, that there's sort of this weird, as you put it before, kind of a puritanism, you know, thinking, oh, meditation is this pure unalloyed beautiful thing that always leads to good stuff and psychedelics are these you know thing that's like really dangerous and bad and could mess you up but it's like actually no if you go out and talk to people and and find out more about the research that's happening here willoughby Britton at brown has done some incredible research on the difficult stages of the contemplative experience um you know people in fact are having a really difficult uh, time integrating meditative altered states as well. Um, in fact, there was, I don't know if you saw in the last month, Doug, the, um, there was a woman who recently came back from a Goenka retreat and afterwards committed suicide. And the oh, suicide no. was connected to that. Right. Um, yeah, I'll put a link to that in the uh, in the episode links. And it's, it's, a, it's something that's brought up a lot of conversation with uh, myself and other colleagues. Um, and, and for me, it's, it's like, there is there there has to be a warning label on all of on all of this stuff you know when you're dealing with altered states it's not to scare people away from it per se but it's just to say you know if we're going to have an open and honest and a, a an adult conversation about these topics we have to acknowledge um that anytime one uh dramatically alters one's perception of reality that it has the potential to very uh, to very much disrupt and uh, to, in a sense, to screw up one's experience, <laughs> at least temporarily, yeah. hopefully yeah. temporarily. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I and I completely resonate with everything you're saying because I, you know, I likewise had to have you know one of my early psychedelic experiences, which I talk about in my book, was uh, was profoundly bad. And yeah, and le- and 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 I ended up I ended up uh, having a. Um, uh, drug-induced psychosis, yeah. uh, which I did, re- you know, fully recover from. But I'm very much like, you know, these are not—they're not toys, right? It's a—it's a kind of technology. Um, they're tools, or potentially tools. But you know, every—you know—or one way of looking at them, I, I think that might be useful as a kind of medicine. You know, in the way that the Native American church looks at peyote as a kind of medicine. But, you know, it all depends on, you know, set and setting and dosage and things like that. And um, it's a bit like, 
I think both intense meditation and the use of, of psychedelics, um, it, it's a bit like an extreme sport. You know, if you're going to climb a mountain or you're going to do deep sea diving, something or cave diving or something like that, you need to, you know, be prepared. And it's probably best to have, you know, some people with you who know what they're doing, you know, who know what they're doing. I mean, it's, it's not a joke that way. And I, and I, and you're absolutely right about the meditation too. And I think people are starting to come around to that realization that, um, that yeah, intensive meditation can be, uh, can be quite destabilizing for your, for your mental health. Um, I mean, just in my own study of, of, you know, talking about Goenka Vipassana, um, you know, some, some in my survey, some people reported having kind of meditation-induced psychosis. But then also, you know, anecdotally from my own my own personal experience, I had a friend who was uh, an American friend of mine who was living in um, New Zealand for a while, who was interested in meditation, was coming to my weekly class, said he wanted to have a you know a more serious experience. He, he signed on for one of these Goenka Vipassana retreat, which and I've done them. I've done two of them, and yeah, they are they're really hard. I kind of refer to them as kind of the, the, the bit like the Marine Corps of uh, of Buddhist meditation <laughs> retreats. And I and I told him ahead of time. I said, you know, um, you know, take it easy. There, that's it's quite tough. But you know, he had no prior um, history of mental illness or anything, and and he came back and he was he was completely psychotic. And, um, and luckily, because I kind of knew what was going on, I have some background in, in mental health. I worked as a mental health worker for a while. Um, I knew what was going on, and I kind of babysat him for a couple days. And his, um, his wife was a, uh, an MD, a doctor. And so between the two of us, we, you know, we were able to you know, get, him some, um, get him some help, get him back on a routine. He needed a bit of medication to get him back on a normal sleep pattern but we inv- we avoided him having to be hospitalized and within within very short order within a week two he was you know back on his feet and fine but had that gone differently you know where he'd been hospitalized and the the way that the sort of system is set up now he, he could very easily have become a kind of casualty of the of the <laughs> of the mental health system so so yeah I, I think these kind of words of of caution are 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 valuable, and and I think also in the in the broader discussion that we're having, they kind of point back to the same thing, which is whether you know de, you know whether it's meditation or psychedelics, you know when you alter your consciousness in profound ways, uh, it can have it can have real real consequences that have to be um, you know considered. It's um, for for me, it's kind of a relief to be talking about this stuff. Um, in a way, because yeah. <laughs> because you know my my views now are are, are not um, binary in any way. I don't see the fact that meditation can be destabilizing or psychedelics can be destabilizing. That I've experienced a type of psychosis in both cases. Huh. Um, I don't consider that a sufficient reason to throw out either one. Um, right. Because as you said. And this kind of makes me think of sort of traditional Buddhist notions of of the refuges, you know, the three refuges, Buddha and Dharma and Zanga. You know, when when someone has the support network, the information, and um, uh, has has sort of clarified to some degree. Of course, there's maybe never a a total clarification of intention. Otherwise, we we would know everything about why we're doing what we're doing. Probably wouldn't need to do any of this stuff. but you know, having those things enables one, even if there are difficult experiences, to be able to, uh, I'd say in almost all cases, to be able to, to, um, to move through them, to work with them, to learn from them um, as, as I've been able to do. And, and, and to me, that's part of the reason this conversation just needs to happen is because the, the lack of information and the lack of support you know, with other people, it's just it's totally uh, abhorrent, you know, from from a certain point of view, um, because when people get into this territory, um, they don't, they just don't have any information. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the sexual education, you know, I got growing up. Like, okay, uh, these are the anatomy parts, and this is what happens when you have sex. Don't have sex. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> until you're until <laughs> yeah, you're right. married, it's like, yeah, wait just... a second. 
<laughs> that's just, not what's going to happen. So what about the other information? It's just I can't find it. Yeah, it's that kind of just say no attitude, and 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 I think things are changing. You know, things are changing a bit. I mean, we were. I mean, it was funny when I was writing the book. It was the beginning of the kind of um, liberalization of of the marijuana laws, in, in particularly um, Washington and Colorado. And then since you know, since then we've seen it happening. Um, but it's you know, right, you know, these days in the last six months or so. Um, you know, certain segments of the federal government seem to want to reboot the whole war on drugs. Right. Um, so we are interesting times, but I also think people are beginning to realize since the there's been an opening up of research on psychedelics again that um, these substances could have um, really valuable, you know, therapeutic use. Um, for all kinds of things, obsessive compulsive behaviors and depression and, um, you know, there's all, there's all types of possible applications. I think, I think one thing that's really trendy now too is, you know, California, um, some people are, you know, microdosing now on, on LSD, um, as a kind of performance enhancer even. And so I, I think what we're seeing is that, uh, you know, at least in certain sectors people are beginning to uh, be less phobic about these things and to see uh, where their possible um, value might be I and mean, that's one of the things about you know medical marijuana is it's just um, as a substance it's so benign in comparison to something like alcohol for example and has so many um, you know possible medical uses that it, there's a there's a point where I would like to hope anyway, um, there's sort of a tipping point where sanity begins to, <laughs> to begins to take over. And so I, I think in that sense, um, you know, that there, there's, there's a real potential for, um, the future of, of, you know, both Buddhist meditation and, and the kind of spiritual use of psychedelics. But I, but I think it's like, you know, what we're doing now is having these kind of open conversations, um, it's important to to uh, to help make that happen. Yes, it sort of p- paves the, paves the way for those attitudes. Yeah, to, and, it, to and it's and questions. now and it's interesting that we can even do this now, you know. And it was, you know, I mean, it, for me, it was, you know, my book is really, and you were right, you know, Zigzag Zen was really the only thing out there for a long time, and it was a great book. Uh, and it was the beginning of my research. Like it was what kind of inspired me to to write the book. Um, particularly, you know, Eric Davis's um, chapter in there that he wrote on the Paisley Gate was was really intriguing to me. Someone from my generation, uh, I, I'm assuming, sort of our generation, Generation X, um, who was thinking seriously about these things, and then also the broader kind of historical and social imp- implications of them. And, um, and so to write this book, it was sort of, it's kind of just on the edge, you know, it's still a bit edgy because it's not really, I think in some circles, it's still, there's still this sort of, you know, drugs are bad and they're not, um, they're not, they shouldn't be the object of serious research. Uh, but then other people are starting to kind of reassess those, um, those prejudices a bit. So and and I think that we can. I mean, I'd also like to say that um, you know I, I point this out in, in the book at the end. There, there's no, there's no silver bullet. There's no magic pill. Like it seemed in the '60s, people were very optimistic. Like you take LSD and you'll become enlightened. You know, people like Timothy Leary and uh, um, Richard Alper and Ralph Metzner. It was like you know the Tibetan uh, using the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, their psychedelic experience are just like, oh, you do acid and you'll become enlightened. And I don't, <laughs> and I don't think that's the case. And I don't, I don't think there is an enlightenment pill. And I don't think there's many people, including psychedelic Buddhists, who would say that there is such a thing. Um, so, you know, these things can be tools, you know, and we can gain insights. And, you know, from the Mahayana point of view, you know, if we're on this bodhisattva path, and like you said before about our intentions, if our intentions are pure, we're on a bodhisattva path, we're learning from everything. And so these things can be tools, um, they can be medicines, um, 
but they're, they're never gonna uh, they're never gonna be like the the perfect cure. There isn't an enlightenment pill. And one of the things that I've discovered, not only from my interviews but also my personal experience, is that um, there's diminishing returns. You know, there's no, you, you know, the more you do something, the more your body, you, human physiology is amazing and psychology that we will adapt to things. So it's the people who, who space out their usage that put it in a well, ritual context that take the time to integrate their experiences into their daily life um, are the ones that are, are sort of most successful at being able to blend kind of Buddhism and, and um, spiritual use of psychedelics. Um, and I think the same thing goes for intensive meditation, um, that people need time to integrate intense experiences. And, and there, it's not that one size fits all. That's the other thing that's really important too. And that's why I'm not an – even though I say, okay, I guess by my definition I'd be a psychedelic Buddhist, I'm, I don't advocate the use of psychedelics to anyone. In the same way that I don't advocate the use of intense meditation, I think if someone did 20 minutes to a half an hour of mindfulness a day or twice a day, I think that is, is pretty much safe for everybody. But if someone wanted to do you know, a long week, two weeks, long silent retreat kind of thing, I would, I would definitely say you know, you know, be careful and do your homework because um, it's not one size fits all and what might be great for somebody might – be quite harmful for for somebody else, and I've seen it. And there's no, and especially in psychedelics, there's no such thing as a typical response, because we're all we're all individuals, and we can have very idiosyncratic responses. So somebody else under the same conditions with the same thing could end up having a really horrible time, uh, where someone might somebody else might get something out of it. So so I think responsible um, responsible use. Is is really is really an important factor. Great, and no, I, I appreciate you mentioning that. And I think uh, the same the same holds true. You know, for for me, I, I echo that. Um, and and you know, t- in order to do one's homework, one has to, of course, have the information. And that's that's uh, why we're here doing this series, and uh, why I'm so grateful that you have helped uh, open this conversation up with with your writing and your work. Um, Thank you so much, Doug, for joining us. Uh, this feels like a good place to end. And I just kind of mention again that if you want to support Buddhist Geeks and support this ongoing conversation, go to BuddhistGeeks.org. You can give there, become a Patreon. And uh, yeah, thank you again, Doug. Great to have you yeah, on the show. Thanks a lot for having me, Vince. It was fun. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.